Hello, you are so very welcome back to our ninth installment of Limelight, one of DCUFM's very own flagship radio shows. Myself, Claire Young and Trudy Fanan are your hosts and we are here every Wednesday at 5pm to provide you with a weekly digest of what is happening in the world that is arts, culture and lifestyle. As usual, we will start the show with an overview of what we have read, watched and listened to within the week. In last week's show, we discussed the Australian coming-of-age drama Baby Teeth, the 2018 dark comedy drama TV series Succession, and the recently released true crime docuseries Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. So, Trudy, what has caught your eye since we last spoke? Yeah, so I finally got around to watching the New York Times documentary Framing Britney Spears, which documents the life and treatment of Britney Spears as she rose to fame in the late 90s and early 2000s. Claire, have you watched it yet? No, I need to watch it. Like, it's definitely an excellent list. Yeah, so kind of at the beginning, it touches on her early childhood fame with her role in the Mickey Mouse Club. And then the years leading from that, like she was just catapulted into the limelight with her debut track, Hit Me Baby One More Time in 1998. And I definitely think we forget that she was just 16 years old when the single came out. Like, she was literally a child. And in this music video... 16 years old I know for some reason when I think back I think of her as in her early 20s but she was 16 yeah, yeah. and then in this music video like because they do touch on this like quite emphatically like we see Britney representing everything young girls across the world wanted to be like Britney was kind of juxtaposing herself as a young school girl with this kind of grown-up adult type look which you know like every young girl when they're when they're that age they want to be older they want to wear makeup and dress up and so Britney soon became like one of the biggest influence just by nature on girls across the world and because of that she was hit with so much scrutiny from presenters and interviewers and the public in general like at one point in the documentary we see a presenter asking her if she knows that many parents feel that she's a negative influence on their daughters and then she kind of turns to the presenter and is like is it up to me to babysit your daughter and like a central tenet of the documentary focuses on the scrutiny she faced the misogyny the constant overwhelming like unbreathable presence of the paparazzi in particular like every move she was watched she was followed like and it honestly baffles me because this is one thing that I just found baffling about the watching the documentary is that like knowing the type of focus that were playing against Britney and the type of um blame that she got from the public like it did lead to her breakdown and the question was always like shifted to her it was always a question of what's wrong with her it was never like how could the paparazzi the public the media do this to a human like how could they make them so vulnerable and push them to a brink because that's initially that's effectively what they did and the documentary like it really I like how they capture it so well like that swarming presence of the paparazzi and I because I feel Claire we were so young when this was happening like we were only about seven or eight when when like her real breakdown happened so I feel like I, I wasn't in tune of how bad it was so that's what I liked about how the documentary done that so well and they included some of the press photographers as interviewees um and the press photographers their point of view was like they always worked within their rights when photographing Brittany and like while at the start of her career, like it was kind of mentioned that Britney, she enjoyed the intention because she was young. And yeah. like fame was new to her and she embraced the paparazzi. And it was from there, it was like a gradual decline. They pushed her to the brink of what she could and could not handle. And like, of course, like it moves on to her marriage together, Kevin Federline and her and um, Britney subsequently giving birth to their, her two, their two sons and the media's attention. It just shifted completely. It was like focus on Britney's role as a mother and like if she was equipped enough and like uh, you, you probably remember it Claire the photograph of Britney driving with her son on her lap um that, yeah. when that broke the tabloids it was just it was almost like that was like the catalyst and then after that it was just a constant chipping away at her kind of like her maternal capabilities from there and then when Federline and Britney got divorced 
like it does show kind of how the public delighted in her 2007 public mental health health um kind of breakdown and then that obviously led to the custody of her kids that same year the last of custody I should say and then like obviously that kind of brings us to where we are today which is the conservatorship um of her father Jamie Spears and that happened in 2008 and that conservatorship like I was just kind of I never actually taught to kind of um, like think of what that actually is defined as and like it's basically someone who's appointed by a judge to manage the financial affairs and the personhood of another um due to the apparent physical or psychological limitations and that's just bizarre to me because for the for most of Britney's life she was completely in control of her shows and the the documentary touches on that at the start of Britney's career she was in charge of what she wore of her songs of all the gigs of who danced of because obviously her shows they were really they weren't just her singing she was a brilliant dancer as well she was in full control of that the choreography everything and multiple interviewees like they all say that about her but now we just see her as a human being with no rights and like for that to be given to her father as well he played a minimal role in her life when she was growing up like it was just that documentary honestly it just, it just sends you into a spiral of like thoughts or like and different things that play into it it's so it's a brilliant documentary I just I couldn't believe how a conservatorship could play out like that because they're meant yeah. to be they're for, associated with elderly people people that are limited in their capabilities like they might fall for online scams they might be able to manage their own finances like Brittany always grew up and she was always in full control of her personal like decisions but like that's just taken away from her now and I also find it interesting like the New York Times they contacted Jamie and Lynn Spears who are Britney's parents and they contacted other close contacts but I think they all declined the interview but the New York Times they contacted Britney herself but they couldn't like clarify if the requests are untrue and she hasn't really commented directly on the documentary since its release apart from the ambiguous Instagram posts but I think we all know like they can be read in so many different ways it's impossible to try decipher them there's no like you can read them in a million different ways her Instagram posts it sounds like they got so much into that show yeah it was brilliant but actually at the same time when you say that I feel like the show could have been longer because I never really knew much about how Britney came into the fame like I knew that she was in the Mickey Mouse Club um, and then from there to go to Hit Me Baby one more time they kind of jumped very quickly between them so it nearly could have been longer but they got everything they needed to they packaged it really well yeah, like we were talking about in the show that like sometimes they make those type of documentaries like way too long. And now this one is like it actually could have been longer. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a hard balance to get because obviously like Britney's story has been covered before. But the new aspect to this one is the conservatorship and really focusing in on that, especially because the free Britney movement has garnered so much kind of it's really mm. like catapulted in the last couple of years. At the end, were you kind of like able to make up your mind about what was happening? Like, do you think it was like it came to a conclusive end yeah um I think at the end of it like a general feeling is just outrage probably that you're just like how can this happen when we were younger I think and when Britney was in the media when she had that kind of mental breakdown in 2007 at that stage like I think everybody was like what's wrong with her like what why is Britney doing this but now we're thinking how can the media have done that how can the paparazzi have gotten away with that so I think the thinking around it has changed but I don't know if there's a conclusive ending because we still know the reality that she's under the conservatorship yeah I definitely need to watch it absolutely so what did you get your hands on this week so uh, I finished 2015's critically acclaimed Channel 4 series Humans recently. It was three seasons long and was kind of like very Black Mirror-esque. So I really like that about it. So it was set in a parallel version of the present where 
owning synths or these like human-like, albeit kind of robotic servants is completely the norm. And just like Black Mirror, it makes you ask those questions of like, what would I do in that situation? And I just kind of found that to be a really interesting aspect of the whole show. So basically it follows a family who buys a synth and just the consequences of doing that and how the aftermath affects the family. And I actually can't say much more because I don't want to ruin it because basically if I went on further on than that about what happens to the story, I would actually ruin it. But uh, I would definitely recommend the show. It got 94% on Rotten Tomatoes for good reason and has a really good cast as well. So it features Gemma Chan and Catherine Parkinson from IT Crowd. And it is just, it kind of is a really intense show to watch because of the moral implications that present themselves when we slowly get closer developing like that kind of technology like that's the kind of same thing that you feel after you watch Black Mirror as well because we're actually kind of we're not there yet but we're like nearing there so it's just very scary and could be a real dilemma in the future so yeah I just definitely recommend it to anyone who wants to watch like a good like what would you do drama if you get what I mean so with the Black Mirror I know obviously there's that kind of like um viewers engagement with it as in like as you say the Black Mirror like you have to decide what you do in that situation how does that play out in humans because basically it's just like it like if there is a future where we actually do have like servants who are these robotic servants and like what happens in the show I just I don't want to spoil it because it it would be too obvious then but like it just kind of makes you ask yourself like if this happened and if this was the, our future and these like moral sort of like dilemmas arose like what would you actually do and I kind of like that's definitely what Black Mirror makes you do because like even like episodes where you know the social media one where you have to like rate someone like as yeah. soon as you them and like every action the points tally up and it's like if I was in that situation what would I do and it's kind of just the same thing with humans so I just kind of compared the two because they're just similar in that way. Is that on Netflix or did you watch that on Channel 4 did you say? No that's on Netflix and then I think you can watch it on Channel 4 Player as well so yeah. Oh, class what would you give it out of 10? I'd say like at least a 9 out of 10 or maybe like a 9.5. So we'll move on to our second section of the show motion pictures best kept secrets so in this segment <laughs> Claire and I will be bringing you the very best unknown facts and hidden knowledge about some of the films we know and love so we changed up last week and we did a behind the scenes look into some of the films and tv series that were nominated for a golden globe in line with the award ceremony taking place at the weekend and we uprooted some novel facts about some of the nominees um, and we also have a follow-up segment coming later in response to the events of the golden globes of the weekend so do stay with us for that but if you go back to our motion pictures, Best Kept Secrets, this week on the cards, we have 1985 coming-of-age comedy drama The Breakfast Club, written, directed and produced by John Hughes. So the script follows, just to kind of give some background for listeners, the script follows five high school students at the fictional Shermer High School um, who report at 7am for Saturday detention. Each student comes from a different clique and their paths uncross to date. So we've Claire Standish, played by Molly Ringwald, who is the popular, stylish character um, we have Brian Johnson, played by Anthony Michael Hall, who was the brainy academic. We have the high school athlete, Andrew Clark, played by Emilio Estevez. John Bender is the rebellious teenager, played by Judd Nelson. And we have the shy introvert, Alice Reynolds, played by Ali Sheedy. So they report to the school library for detention, where they are tasked with a thousand word essay in which they must each describe who you think you are. So they are instructed not to talk, move or sleep until they are let go at 4 p.m. And the principal returns occasionally, but the students remain largely unsupervised for the detention period. And it's over the nine hours or so that we see the cliques and the high school hierarchy ideals kind of break down, where the students form a really strong bond by the end of the film. Um, and I think this one, and I even I just kind of watched clips from it when I was doing some research for this. And it's just, 
I just think that the storyline will never age. Like, unfortunately, there will always be that hierarchical structure in schools. Like, even from my own experience of secondary school, it's just funny to think back. Like, I don't know about you, Claire, but in my school, there were specific benches assigned to specific, like, cliques and almost subcultures. Like, and then those benches were, like, passed on to the next generation of cliques, so to speak. So there was, like, there was a Harlow's bench, there was an emo bench, there was the popular bench, there was the kind of arty introvert bench. And then you had benches for people who were from the one area or village near the school. And then that bench would almost be, like, um, inherited to the next, like, year oh from the school. I know. Like, isn't that so just excited. great? Like, <laughs> it's guys Like, that was kind of really strong when I... um first started secondary school and first year like I that was really strong like you know if you went to a certain area of my of the building like if you if they were like it was um sectioned into blocks so if you went into a certain block you know you'd find kind of the emo bench there if you went down to near the art room you know you'd find the kind of introvert arty creative kind of um friends on that group like it was just crazy and then but gradually like that kind of lessened as I kind of got up into the senior cycle of school but that oh, was yeah. really that was really strong when I was in first year isn't that mad that is terrible that is so divided that's horrible so like I can apply the convention of the breakfast club almost directly to how my school operated so the first fact is that the script's original working title was the lunch brunch but it was actually decided that the childish rhyme didn't match the film's tone another name considered was the library revolution but Hughes finally decided on the breakfast club when hearing that it was a nickname for detention by students and staff at a high school where the son of a friend of Hughes's attended. God, imagine we were talking about the lunch bunch right now. It's just so I, different. I feel like that would describe like a group of middle-aged middle-aged yeah. women that went to like their local cafe every Sunday morning. <laughs> God, ladies who lunch, that kind of what it reminds me of. Yeah, literally. Yeah. And then, the fact is, after the movie aired, there were a lot of rumours arising around the character of the rebellious John Bender played by Judd Nelson and whether or not producer John Hughes was considering firing him. So this rumour came about when the co-stars of the film felt that he was trying to get so into the rebellious persona that he would method act off camera and he really tormented Molly Ringwald in particular and even though like they they were the ones that shared the romantic kiss on camera he really kind of nitpicked at her and Ali Sheedy who plays um the shy introvert she once said that I was really kind of dazzled by him he was so unpredictable he did not stick to anything John wrote in the audition. Nelson stayed with it and then he went off on his, on his own rift. He went all over the place and John loved it. So he was really like, there's always that story of the person that like people kind of are a bit iffy with or like people don't get along with. But like that was him in this instance. Um, and the third fact is that Molly Ringwald was originally cast as Alison, the shy introvert, but asked to switch to the role of popular high schooler Claire after playing the unpopular girl in 16 Candles, which is John Hughes's debut film. So names such as Laura Dern, Jodie Foster and Robin Wright all auditioned for the role of Claire before it was given to Molly Ringwald in the end. Jodie Foster is the lead character, I can't imagine it. Yeah, or even Laura Dern, I couldn't imagine that. So um, moving on to Emilio Estevez, um, he was John Hughes's first choice to play the kind of athletic character Andrew Clark. Um, and so unsure whether Estevez would agree or not, he had a list of famous faces he had considered to take on the role. Some of these famous faces included Michael J. Fox, Jim Carrey, Tom Cruise, Matthew Broderick and Rob Lowe. That, imagine Jim Carrey playing the jock character. <laughs> just because of what he is associated with in roles now, I yeah. just... I just think it could I couldn't take it seriously enough it wouldn't like sink it wouldn't sit right <laughs> so the whole film this is an interesting one it was shot in sequence 
which means it was shot from the very beginning to the end in linear order because Hughes wanted the shooting to be reflective of the character's transformation from the beginning of the film to the end. And this is not a usual technique that is used, so you have to consider lighting, location, and angles, but Hughes was determined to make it work, which I think is like a kind of a nice little touch on his, I suppose, production and his direction, um, the way he did things. Mm, yeah, I like, I'd never really heard of that because usually it's like, it doesn't matter what sequence you shoot it in because obviously they can just edit into the right order at the end. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, And then this one, the song Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds, um, that was actually written specifically for this film and it was the band's only number one hit. And like that song, it's so like central to the movie. I think it comes in at the end and like kind of the end sequence that song plays. Um, And it's really, it, it's really, really suited to the type of... um sequence that it is and what the characters are doing leaving the detention um so that's a really good one but I didn't realize it was written specifically for the film yeah and like it's whenever you hear that song you think of that movie like yeah exactly and then lastly so we talked a lot about ad living in previous episodes and here um with the breakfast club John Hughes he encouraged the characters to really personalize their role and become one with who they are playing so Judd Nelson curious again he he quite literally and he ad-libbed a number of lines and scenes, including the closing scene where he walks across the football field and he fist pumps the air, an act which wasn't originally scripted, but it is now recognised as one of the most iconic scenes of the film. And I feel like we've touched on this so many times that the ad-libbed lines are the ones that are most memorable and the ones that, yeah. despite not wanting to be or like intending to be the ones that are most memorable, they are. <laughs> they always fit in so naturally with everything else because when the person really starts to understand the character too. So we will move on to our story of the week segment. So for our story of the week last week, we took a look at some of the nominations for this year's 78 Golden Globes Awards, which aired last Sunday, the 28th of February. And we weighed up some of the categories and the potential outcomes and who we would have liked to see come away with the Hollywood accolade. So in response to that this week, we will be discussing our take on how the event played out, if we enjoyed it, our opinions on the outcome of some of the categories, and of course, touching on the Golden Globe ceremony, we have to make reference to the style that was showcased at the event, because that is obviously a central tenet to the event itself. And with it being virtual this year, I think there were significant and almost humorous reminders of how COVID-19 has changed everything. Like even down to celebrities deciding to wear a hoodie and pants to the online ceremony or like, you know, just being in their bedroom, you could see their bed behind them and different things like that. It was a definitely a different take on the Golden Globes this year. Yeah, it was such a good show. Yeah, so we'll go straight into the event itself. Claire, how did you feel the event went, all things um, COVID-19 and health guidelines considered? Like, we'll start with the presenters first. How did you think that one played out? Yeah, I thought, like, the show was really amazing. Like, the fact that Tina Fey and Amy Poehler were in, like, two completely different cities and opposite ends of the country, and it didn't even feel jarring, and they were still able to have that flow between them. Like, they were really able to make that work, and they were just so funny. Like, it didn't even feel like they were in two different places. Yeah, I felt the same. Like I thought as much as they have hosted it before, they've always done a side by side. Whereas this one, they were in completely different side of the coasts. Like we had um, Faye presenting at the Beverly Hilton and then Paula was at the Rainbow Room in Manhattan. And you almost mm-hmm. forgot that at times. Like they were so good. They bounced off one another. Um, and it was as much as like the jokes, the comedy sketches and the whole kind of celebrity digs over the Golden Globes like they're always random and like sometimes they're eyebrow raising but this one like it was I just thought it was really good and all things like virtually and like 
all things that could have went wrong like it they really kept on script it was really good yeah it was it was so good and uh, we also like saw some of the usual cast of SNL doing their thing in the sketches I thought they were funny and uh, I really like Keenan Thompson's and Maya Rudolph's like really weird version of the rambling speeches that the nominees can deliver <laughs> yeah that was good I also love the comedy sketch that TikTok star Ron Hines he asked several kids various questions about the Golden Globes award shows um and different kind of tv shows and their answers were so gas did you see this bit Claire yeah it was so lovely wasn't it yeah it was so funny because it kind of built up to kind of their answers like at one stage one kid told Hines that celebrities sit on the couch and brush their teeth during the award shows because they were asked what they thought happened at the Golden Globes um so that was really funny and then I think it was really nice that the last question they were all asked who who was Chadwick Boseman and like they, yeah. they instantly knew who he was. It was just such a kind of telling, a sign of the times kind of, like it was really lovely. Yeah, it was just a really nice wholesome segment as well. Yeah, and um, it was funny. Obviously there was technical glitches. Like the, fir- the very first award view- viewers couldn't hear the acceptance speech after Daniel Kluas, um, he won best performance by an actor in a sporting role. Um, in a motion picture and it was so funny he started talking and Laura Dern god love her she didn't know what to do she was like fumbling with her glass and she was like oh god I think there's a technical difficulty but it was just so funny that had to be the very first award (laughs) yeah I actually thought it was a joke like I thought for some reason they were doing the joke to start the show off and then Laura Dern just got like so uncomfortable and I was like oh this is not a joke this is not a joke I thought it was a joke as well I was like oh my god this is so typical of course they do a technical glitch but like by her reaction I was like oh my god (laughs) oh I felt so bad for yeah so if you move on to our categories our first one is best performance by actress in a comedy musical or tv series so the list of nominees here we had Lily Collins for her role in Emily in Paris we had Kaylee Cuoco for Flight Attendant Elle Fanning in The Great and Jane Levy in Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. But Katrin O'Hara came out with the win in this category for her role in Shit's Creek. How did you feel about that one? Yeah, I, I felt so bad for uh, Lily Collins though because at the start they like joked about Emily in Paris like just like not being a good show and then she just kind of just like had to like sit there then. I was so happy about Katrin O'Hara winning though. It was so, it, like that was, she deserved it so much. Yeah, I thought, yeah, no, definitely 100% agree. And um, I knew Shit's Creek were somehow going to like come out with something. And they did, of course, they came out with two in the end. But if we go on to our second chosen category, that is Best Performance by Actress, um, by an Actress in Drama. And the nominees here were Olivia Coleman for her role in The Crown, Sarah Paulson for her role in Ratched, um, Laura Lenny for Ozark, and Jodie Comer in Killing Eve. But Emma Corrin came out with the win in this category for her role as Princess Diana in The Crown and I was actually delighted because she 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 seemed so genuinely grateful and I thought it was so telling and admirable that she paid tribute to Princess Diana herself for kind of giving her the character influences and her personal attributes that made everybody love Princess Diana so much I thought that was lovely yeah and she just played the character so well like it makes so much sense how she got it like it wasn't even like an impersonation it was more like uh like it was very respectful the way that she did it too yeah, she really inhibited all the kind of characteristics and attributes that we everybody loved Princess Diana so much for. Yeah, definitely. So our next category is Best TV Series, Musical or Comedy. And the nominations here were Emily in Paris, The Flight Attendant, The Great and Ted Lasso. But Shit's Creek came out, the winner here again, and they ended up with two awards by the end. And I think out of that category, I probably would have said, yeah, definitely Shit's Creek for that one. Yeah, because they were saying like last week that this is Shit's Creek last chance to win awards in the golden globes so they definitely deserved it yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. So if we move on to Best Actress in TV Series with um, Nicole Kidman in The Undoing, Daisy Edgar-Jones for Normal People, Kate Blanchett for Miss America, Shira has for her role in Unorthodox. But this one, um, we saw Anya Taylor-Joy claim the victory for her role in The Queen's Gambit. I thought that was nearly one of the toughest categories. I was really split between um, Shira has for her role in Unorthodox and Daisy Edgar-Jones, but I'm nonetheless, I'm delighted for Anya Taylor-Joy. Because in general, I think it was so good that the nominations were so young. Yeah, I'm so surprised, though, that uh, normal people didn't get any awards whatsoever. I know. I was definitely, I was really surprised with that. Because yeah. like, if it was a year that we could have given them award, this would have been it. Because everybody was so consumed by that series. for the Like, it touched every corner of the globe, nearly. Mm, yeah, like, it, it just, it received such, like, a worldwide acclaim. Like, I thought it would get something. But, no, but then, but. Queen's Gambit was still really good and Annie Taylor-Joy was really good in it as well so she still did deserve it but I thought normal people would get something. Our next category is best actor in a drama series with Jason Bateman for his role in Ozark, Bob Odenkirk for Better Call Saul, Al Pacino for Hunters, Matthew Reese for Perry Mason um, but the winner here again it was for um, Josh O'Connor for his role in Prince as Prince Charles in the Crown and I kind of was thinking about that I was like god it's mad to think that an on-set relationship of Princess Diana and Prince Charles that played out in real life, that the two of them came out with Golden Globes. Like, I wonder, has that ever happened before? Yeah, true. Like, a, I, like there was even one uh, award where Olivia Colman and I think... Gillian Anderson. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, they were the same award, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, that was like, mad. Yeah, the crown, literally, it touched every single category. It was like, who's, who's it going to be this time from the crown? Yeah. <laughs> But um, next we have Best TV Series Drama, where the nominees were Lovecraft Country, The Mandalorian, Ozark and Ratchet. But The Crown, again, came out the lucky end here. And in total, I think they scooped up four awards by the end of the ceremony. Like, wow. I think, yeah, I know. But they, they, they were this was their year, really, because it was the fourth and possibly final series. And the fact that it was based on true events and the fact that everybody was so consumed by the royal family's events, that that was kind of a real factor in it. So our last um, category, we have best limited series or series made for TV. We have Unorthodox, Normal People and Small Axe. But Queen's Gambit came out here. They claimed their win with two awards by the end of the ceremony. Yeah, I, Queen's Gambit was an amazing show. It was, it was, really was like it, the whole aesthetic of it and like the style of it as well was so stunning. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. But I, I think at the same time, I would have liked to see Unorthodox come out with something. I just really like that show I'm not sure for whatever reason but I just thought it was so so good and that was based on true events and orthodox was that's why I thought maybe there was a stronghold there for them to try and pull out with something but the fact that it was based on true events but nonetheless like Queen's Gambit that is a brilliant show yeah definitely yeah yeah so our last um kind of edit for the Golden Globes is a look back at the fashion that aired on the show and our take of the top three looks of the night so Claire I'll let you go first with this one yeah, I think we're probably going to have the same one, but I think my, yeah. Top three looks are going to be the same. I can almost tell what yours is going to be, but go anyways. I think my favourite outfit of the night was probably the same as a lot of people's, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy's. Yeah, she yeah. fabulous. Just for listeners, she wore like a fabulous floor-length, shimmery, emerald green kind of deep v-neck dress and she had like a matching cutaway loose throw and it was all like Dior's hot couture. Oh, it was just fabulous. It was I it took three people 300 hours to make really yeah oh my god but like I, stunning. it was fabulous oh my god it was just so gorgeous and her hair like it just framed yeah. her face and her hair so nicely like I just thought it was fabulous 
it was so dramatic like even when she was trying to talk like it was like in her face but like she still just <laughs> kept it for like the drama I loved it yeah I love the bit where she was giving her acceptance speech she was literally holding her hair from yeah. her eyes. <laughs> um, yeah. that was me I love that look but um I also loved um Rosamund Pike she had like the hot pink layered tulle dress with bow detail that was by Molly Goddard I'm not sure if you saw this one Claire it was kind of like you could no, stunning, yeah 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 she you could kind of see her from obviously like only shoulders up but when she posted a picture on her Instagram it was gorgeous it was like a hot pink really layered puffy tulle dress and I love that she wore it with black chunky boots like it was such a play on the usual girly tulle dress but then it was given like this new kind of utilitarian lease of life with the boots I thought that was fabulous yeah I, I did you see uh, Sarah Paulson's uh, dress yeah and the cast as well she had a yeah. cast <laughs> the Prada purple cast like it was so extra I know literally it's like why bother get your cast from your doctor when you can get it for Prada <laughs> and she had like these amazing like bleached brows it was so Sarah Paulson like it was just so cool like it, there was something so like elegant about that whole look yeah and her hair was fab as well like I know her hair is short anyways but I think it was just so like that blunt cut was so cool yeah she's so cool yeah um my last look was um Amanda Seyfried so she wore a salmon pink off the shoulder custom red Oscar de la Renta gown and it was like had a draped floral neckline I thought it was just so classy it was almost verging on the side of being like too safe and simple but I think the floral um kind of bodice on the front of her dress and like at the ends and back of her dress I thought it was lovely yeah, it was so like elegant. Yeah, it was fab. Do you have any other looks that you liked from it? Yeah, I just want to do a shout out to Tiffany Haddish's look. She came up like when she came on stage, she presented the award for best animated film and the the lights, she was wearing like, this full mirrored strapless gown and it was just amazing. Like oh. it yeah, like the lights are like shining off it. It was an Alberta Ferretti look. And she just paired it with this like really natural makeup and these amazing hoops and the whole, just the whole look was stunning, especially when she went to the stage and all the lights were reflecting back off the dress. It was just such a nice touch. Yeah, I actually did think that was fabulous as well. And did you see, I can't remember who wore it, but it was like, I think it was a Versace um, hot couture green, almost like a party, tea party dress, you know, the ones that come out with the hips and it was like that bright, luminous green and it was like paired with those yeah. almost like lady gaga heels they were like holographic they were i thought it was so cool yeah such good fashion this this time around especially and even like jason sudeke is in his, in his hoodie i think as well like the fact that um we got to see like some of them i just thought, thought it was so funny that they were just wearing like hoodies and um some of them were just in like you know their bedrooms while others really went all out and they were like had you know their family all around them in these fabulous apartments or wherever they were but some people like I just thought it was such a sign of the times I thought it was gas um so I think that's all we have time for this week um you can catch back our shows on the Spotify and you can follow along at DCU Limelight to keep up with all our shenanigans we'll be back here next Wednesday at 5 p.m to provide an overview of what is happening in the world of this arts culture and lifestyle but until then we will see you next week catch you next week Claire bye Trudy.